Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Will Kinzel, Vice President of Government Affairs for Molson Coors, the company known for Molson and Coors beers, of course, but also for all the Miller products, plus brands like Blue Moon, Crystal, Foster's, Peroni, Topo Chico, which I have to throw in there because my wife loves Topo Chico, and we have a pantry full of it. Prior to his role at Molson Coors, Will served as the Government Affairs Managing Director for Delta Airlines for over five years. But I think it's pretty appropriate that uh, Will is in his current role because, as I hope you'll hear, he is the type of guy who you want to have a beer with. I got to know Will when he was working for House Minority Leader and then House Speaker, John Boehner, between 2009 and 2013. His career arc has taken him from the private sector to politics, then right to the heart of the U.S. Capitol, and then back out again. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Will and I sat down to talk on Friday, September 17th. Will Kinzel, welcome to Staffer. Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. Um, it is really great to connect with you. Um, I wanted to talk with you because you have such an interesting pathway from the periphery of politics when you started your career, um, you know, working in government affairs. Then you worked for a political entity directly. Then you made it right into the heart of Congress, working for first the minority leader and then the speaker of the House uh, as a policy advisor. But as you may know, uh, I like to start with my guests at the very beginning. Uh, I know you grew up in Vermont, a place that does not produce a lot of Republicans on the national scene these days. No, no, not at all, Jim. I think when uh, we've got a mutual friend, I think in Heidi Tringe. Yes. Uh, that is, uh, Heidi and I grew up together. Um, fortunately, she went back, uh, and, and the number of Republicans that had dropped when we left from four to two is now back up to three. But, you know, it's, <laughs> yes, it does not produce, not produce a large number. But it produced you, and that's something I want uh, to figure out. So tell me about, you know, your family and growing up in Montpelier. Yeah, no, uh, happy to. And again, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, always fun to do something like this and um, and to reconnect with you. So, uh, yeah, grew up in, in Montpelier, Vermont, and I grew up um, I grew up in a, uh, with parents that were both uh, had been engaged in politics um, in different ways, and what that meant is that that tended to be a conversation around the dinner. Uh, the dining room table and a conversation that I'd be listening to and tried to pick up on. Um, the neat thing about Vermont and the neat thing about Vermont's capital, uh, especially uh, especially a number of years ago, is that it is it's a it's a small state. It's a small town. Uh, Montpelier probably has eight thousand people in it, and it had a state capital, especially back then, that was accessible really to anybody who wanted to walk in. Um, including a 10-year-old kid who was just looking for his parents. Um, my mother had been elected as a state representative from Montpelier and eventually chaired the House Judiciary Committee, um, and she'd be in hearings, and it's not anything like you'd ever see in Washington, D.C. It's sort of a conference table with people sitting around it, and it wasn't a big deal for me to quietly open the door, which I knew to do, and sneak into a seat and start doing homework or reading whatever book I happen to have. My dad um, has been, continues to be a political reporter uh, up in Vermont, uh, 
almost exclusively on the radio, although he does some TV now with uh, with Vermont Public Radio and um, Vermont Public Radio or Vermont Public TV. But it's a you know he would be there you know recording, interviewing interviewing his uh, interviewing the the state representatives, the state senators, catching the governor when he could, and and again I sort of knew where his haunts were and. Uh, in a nice Capitol building, but isn't that that isn't that big, and could always kind of track him down if I needed to too. So it was easy to be around that, and uh, and and I found fun to be around that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, that that dining room conversation, I imagine you got a lot of you know, and, and you're full about constituent service, about you know schedules. You know, your parents had to be all over the place, all over the state, uh, presumably at you know any given day. Um, and like you know the the politics of being public, right? Your mother was a public figure. What was all that like? Uh, taking all that in, you know, I think it's again, it's sort of the benefit of being in a small town, right? Like it doesn't, it wasn't, there wasn't that much scrutiny um, that occurred. Although, I, you know, the one story that has stuck with me when I talk to people about what it means to be. Um, what it means to engage in public service. And then, by the way, have you thought about what this is going to be like for your family? I've got a, a boss who's actually, um, today's his last day, and he is about to join the uh, Attorney General's office in the state of Colorado. And I said, this is great. Uh, just bear in mind that your daughter and your son, who are in high school, may have a little bit more scrutiny on them. And he goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, when I, when I was a state representative, um, this is way back in the day of both not just VHS tapes and not just uh, pre-blockbuster uh, rental stores that were only existed in the towns that they were in, but certainly I think Betamax was available at the time. Um, I feel pretty confident. I was the one who went into the store and I found some movie that uh, that I thought was going to be you know fun to rent and watch, and I completely forgot about returning it. Uh, and the practice of the, but it was under my mom's account and the practice of the owner was just to sort of take the paper slip and put it up on a post-it note board on a cork board to let just so that if you came back in, you saw it, you'd be reminded of it. Well, of course, prompted somebody to sort of see that, uh, Amy Davenport had not returned a movie in three days, uh, or it was three <laughs> days overdue. And that person called the reporter for the local paper and said, I think we need a story about how she's irresponsible. <laughs> Needless Video to say, the story the story never got run, uh, and you know whatever the Double you know, O Seven movie was, it got returned very quickly. <laughs> but it was a um, but it was sort of an extra early exercise about how uh, early example for me about like what what does it mean to be in that public space, and what does it mean to have family in that public space, and and just the sort of degree of you know, especially I think in today's age, I couldn't even fathom what it would be like given social media pressures and uh, the constant recording of one's life to um, to be in that space now. Yeah. Well, I hope you at least rewound the tape when you re- returned it. Oh, we did have automatic rewinders. That, that would have been, been a second You know, it was the crisis. separate device that sat next to your, <laughs> next to your recorder or your playback <laughs> machine. So look, so, when, so given your upbringing and all that you were exposed to, when you went off to college, did you think, okay, I, I want to study politics, I want to be in politics, I, I love this, or was it like, eh, I'm going to go you know, explore something else? Um, you know, I really thought I was going to go into business somehow, some way. Uh, I was at Gettysburg College, um, which was a great, great place to go to school, great place to, um, 
to feel very comfortable in your surroundings and a place where by your fourth year, you really wanted to get out and explore the rest of the world, right? It got into a little too small. I think it's, there's a benefit to those smaller schools like that. And I ended up with a political science minor, mostly because I thought the classes were fun. And I, in order to get a major, I had to take certain classes that I knew would not be fun. And so I avoided that. Um, but it allowed me, I think, to with a couple really good professors uh, that were there that I keep in touch to with this day um, to kind of do, to be engaged in, in you know, conversations about Congress, the Supreme Court, the presidency, and, uh, and again, keep thinking about those things and how those institutions had evolved over time. And I never really still thought that I was going to go to, that I'd end up in Washington. Um, and it was really, I think, the same, a similar thing that happens to a lot of people. Um, I mean, there's certainly those that, yeah, I want to go to, they, they're uh, bent to go to D.C. from an early age. But um, for me, my best friend at the time had moved here. Um, and after spending uh, a few summers and winters um, either either bartending in Colorado in Vail or bartending on the Jersey Shore, um, a real job was probably something my parents wanted to see happen and were trying to nudge me towards. Well, my friend had landed in D.C. and I started just coming in on the weekends because there would be something. There was always something going on in D.C. and it was a it was a fun place with a lot of fun people from all over the country. And I looked around one day and everyone everyone that I knew thought I already lived here uh, and just hadn't figured out why we hadn't connected <laughs> during the week. And I'd say, no, I actually don't live here, but not yet. And so very quickly we kind of worked out, found found the first job uh, with a PR agency, and then um, and got the first first apartment and been here for the last 22 years. Yeah. Well, along the way, you picked up a law degree and you also worked, um, as I understand, in government relations for Case New Holland, a manufacturer Mm -hmm. of agricultural machinery. But in 2007, you got your first job in politics uh, in the council's office at the Republican National Committee. When, you know, doing government relations for a major corporation like that, you are actively on Capitol Hill. You are in, you know, uh, policy circles and policy conversations all the time. Um, What made you make that transition to the RNC? Um, And when did you realize that it was something that you kind of wanted and or needed to do? You know, I got out of law school. I went to law school at GW, as you mentioned, uh, at George Washington University. Um, I was in their night program uh, and got out, graduated in 2006 and, and took the bar exam and passed it. Um, and all of my friends from law school, had their careers shot them, or nearly all of them, shot them in the direction of law firms. And, and I knew that wasn't quite the place I wanted to go. And I knew I wanted to take the law degree and then apply it into sort of the political and policy space. And I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to do that yet. Um, but, uh, someone who I come to know, uh, very well and respect, um, a ton, a gentleman by the name of Mike Duncan. Um, Mike is a, was a national committee man from the state of Kentucky, uh, for the Republican party. Um, he had sir been in the first Bush white house, um, uh, in the office of public liaison, uh, I believe he was a white house fellow at the time. Um, long connected within the Republican party and, and politics and, and really enjoyed sort of that. He enjoyed sort of that natural component of like the political, the role of the political parties and what they should do and, uh, and, and what the role they could, the positive role they could play. And he had an opportunity, uh, under 
George W. Bush to be chairman of the committee. Um, and so as he came in to be chairman, uh, we're super excited for him at the time and, you know, had a chance to go in and say, hey, he had a chance to turn back to me and said, is there anything here you want to do? You just got out of law school. What about counsel's office? And that, that seemed like a perfect place to sort of start uh, spending more time on Capitol Hill. And I think the, the great thing about it for me is it, it gave me that experience to be in one of the political committees. If you talk to, well, not all staffers, uh, certainly, but, but a, lot, a, a lot of the people who I think know and understand how the town works it's not just about um, not just about understanding the policy, but if you can understand the politics behind it too, and that generally means that you do a stint over into one of those two committees or one of the committees. Right? It's there's the national committee, there's the congressional committee, the senatorial committee on either side doesn't matter, yep. Republican or, or Democrat. And it's um, but that gives you, I think, an insight to sort of the political campaigns, the political conversations the political part of the equation that's out there, that if you don't have that, um, can you be really, really good at your job uh, as, a, as, some, as a policy expert? Absolutely. But understanding how those policies are going to influence elections back in people's districts or within the states or nationally, those are, uh, I think that that's an invaluable piece. For people that have a chance to do it, it adds an invaluable sort of uh, branch and knowledge into their into their understanding of of how the town works. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It um, you know sometimes when you talk to folks outside of politics, they sort of hope or or wish there was a world in which there was like politics in one circle, and then completely separately there was like a policy circle, and right. and it wouldn't be infected. And and you know that one assumes politics is an in, you know infecting right, um, <laughs> as opposed to it's an ingredient like you know. These these things are are baked together, and the politics do infuse the policy conversations, the agendas, the language, the priorities. Like all of that, is actually part of the design, right? Yes. To, to be responsive exactly. to constituents, you know, that is supposed to translate to policy agendas. Um, well, you uh, after the RNC, you went to work for someone who knows that combination as well as anyone. Uh, in, in early 2009, you became policy advisor and counsel to John Boehner, who at that time was House Minority Leader. Two years later, he became Speaker. That's when you and I got to meet. Uh, mm -hmm. You were working um, for John Boehner. I was doing legislative affairs for President Obama. Um, John Boehner is known for a lot of things. Uh, but some of the things that really like come to mind for me are everyone recognizes and when I say everyone, I mean people on both sides who work in the Capitol, who worked in the White, who got to you know n know him at least from a working relationship type of um, thing, or, or get to observe him. Decent man, good sense of humor, um, perspective, and care for the institutions. Right. Um, for for much of his career, he was known as a deal maker. You know, he was chairing committees that that passed bills where. He got 80%. If he was the chairman, he got 80% of what he wanted, but he accommodated 20%, uh, you know, for of, of his priorities for things that other people wanted, whether they be other members of his party or the other party to get, you know, bills made into law. Um, can you tell me a little bit, you know, you, you had exposure to John Boehner in a way that, you know, few people did um, being a staff member of his. Um, can you tell us? a bit about him and what it was like to work for him. 
look, I think working with all apologies to sort of everybody else that all the, a lot of great opportunities that I've had, I think the opportunity for, to work for John was one of the, will, will be just sort of the best job that I ever had a chance to have. Right. And I think part of that was part of that is proximity and part of that's location. And, um, it's a pretty amazing thing. I just, I, I, as I know it was for you, it, walking into the White House every day, walking into the U.S. Capitol to go to work every day, taking a look at the building as on my way in uh, in the early morning, and being able to look back at it uh, every evening as I as I walked out is um, it just never gets old. Uh, I think the best advice I ever got uh, about that was if there's ever a moment in time where you where that gets old to you and that doesn't give you goosebumps it's time to leave and you probably missed your window to leave. And for me, I feel very fortunate that when I walked away, I still had use, I had goosebumps in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evenings. John was, um, he, I learned, I think so much about the right way to lead teams from him. Um, in my time there that I think lessons that I will, you know, have with me for, for the better part of my life. Um, and that if I'm, if, if I'm doing the right things, all there are lessons that I'll pass down to my kids. It was, you know, exercises in humility, exercises in, um, in understanding sort of how, you know, how fragile of a moment it really is to be in that position, uh, and to make the most out of it every day that you're there. Um, he wanted to make sure that as a leadership team, I mean, I, you, I appreciate the introduction, Jim, because it's, it, it sets this up in the sense that, yes, you, I, I had the privilege of working in the Capitol. I had the privilege of having my own office in the Capitol, of being on the leadership staff, the Speaker of the House. And he made sure on a regular basis that none of us ever had too big of an ego about that, right? And that all of us understood that if the people over in Longworth in his personal office weren't doing their job day in and day out, and if they called, if a staff assistant from the Longworth office or a staff assistant from Ohio called, and we didn't take that call seriously and we didn't take that call uh, as being as important as anything else, uh, it really, then, then we weren't doing the right thing because it was those people in Ohio and in the Longworth building that allowed someone like me to have the job that I got to have, right? And so it was this, nothing that's ever pounded into you, but you would see, you'd note that he, he liked spending time with the staff assistants, with the people, with the the kids that were answering the phones, right. That were taking all the incoming calls from constituents. And and he, on occasion, dare any of us to sit in that room for half an hour and, and field the same calls and do the same thing. Um, we would have a, on an annual basis, we'd have a staff retreat. And, you know, by the time we're in the speaker's office, it's, there's a hundred people in the room. And he, you know, the, I think just even thinking back on that, he would be the staff, you know, that kind of retreat was about who we were as a group. What kind of, what was our mission? What was our, why were we there? What were we trying to improve? Um, and he made very clear that, and he was not facilitating. He was just sort of a voice in the room. He wanted to hear everybody's opinion, but it was very clear that the 21-year-old staff assistant that had been on the job for three weeks had as much of a voice as the chief of staff, 
who have been in Washington, D.C. for 30 years. And so that's a, I think that, just that perspective of we are all on the team together and the team succeeds or no one succeeds was, um, I think was just, you know, created an atmosphere that was, you just enjoyed going in and you win or lose, you, you enjoyed, um, you know, taking the line on his behalf. Uh, and it was, it was great. I, um, I think, as you may know, I have a copy of his book which for our readers, uh, John Boehner, it's called On the House, a Washington memoir. Um, yes. Towards the end in the, in the acknowledgments section, he has this to say about his staff. And he uses a term, um, which I know you're familiar with, called Boehnerland. And that's what his staff called anyone who worked for John Boehner, whether it be, to your point, the leadership office, the the congressional office in Longworth, you know, back in the state of Ohio, all of that is in Boehnerland. And he closes his acknowledgments <clears throat> by saying this, never in my life when I was one of a dozen kids in a tiny house or working every rotten job there was, did I ever imagine someone would coin the term Boehnerland and put me in the middle of it. But having been here for a few decades, Surrounded by so many great people, I would say Boehnerland is a damn fine place to be. And I have to say, you know, hearing you describe it um, and knowing some other folks from Boehnerland, it does seem like a special place. And not just because of who Speaker Boehner is and and was as Speaker, um, but also the relationship between staffers and so, you know, within Boehnerland. And I'm, I'm curious... Whether when you when you joined, um, was there someone who developed into a mentor for you, or with whom you developed a, a particularly close relationship within Bannerland? Yeah, it is. It certainly is a special place, and it's a place that it's um, it is impressed upon you that you're uh, that there's a certain uh, fortune, privilege, luck, what have you that's that that the door opened and you had a chance to walk into it, and and just for what it's worth. A bit like Hotel California, you never leave, um, but on in all the best ways, right? Like it is a, um, a Bannerland is not exclusive, was not exclusive to those who worked for him in the moment. Bannerland was a term uh, that encompasses encompassed anybody who had ever worked for John, ever, and there was just a mutual understanding and mutual respect that went along with being there. Um, I think there's a lot of folks, there's a number of folks I can think of who like encapsulates it, right? It's, um, uh, I think everyone from someone like Dave Schnicker, who is sort of, I think spent all of a year or two of his entire career outside of Bainerland, um, but was, uh, was part of, uh, was part of John's original campaign team way back. I think Dave understands Bannerland like as well as anybody does. Um, someone else who I always looked up to and always tried to find more time to have conversations with because I learned from every single conversation I had, um, was Joe Marie St. Martin. Um, and Joe Marie is, is Boehner's longtime counsel, uh, is telling to me about the book that there's, I, I think what's telling about John and Bannerland is that he acknowledges the entirety of it in the back um, he references 
specific staff, maybe in that entire book, he might reference specific staff two or three times. Um, Jumri's one, uh, and I, specifically it's about a story about a gift that ended, ended up on his desk and or being in Mongolia and whether or not he could accept a, a small horse as a gift or something like that. And I think she was very quick to point out that he couldn't. Um, but it's but Joe Marie was, I think, as an institutionalist uh, and as someone who kept both the interests of the office of the speaker, of John Boehner and of the House representatives in a phenomenal perspective. Um, she was someone who I just I, I was you know, privileged to get to spend a whole lot of time with when I was there. Um, well, something else John Boehner is known for is Bainerisms. And <laughs> yes. I want to move to the pop quiz section of the podcast, okay. Will. Yep. Um, in the back of the book, he also lists about 20 of these, and they're, and they're <laughs> really good. I, I highly recommend people flip to the back uh, just for the Bainerisms. I'm going to read a couple of them and then ask for your translation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds okay, good. Here we go. A dog that shits quick doesn't shit long. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that is a classic one. Um, I'll be candid. That's one that I always got confused uh, that he would throw out, and I sort of scratch my head for a second. I'm like, uh, what exactly did he mean by that? Um, <laughs> but it's a. Uh, um, but it, I think it's had it sort of had he would throw that out with a couple different meanings, right? In the sense that it's um, that if you're not if you're not committed, you're not in the long haul. You're not there for the long haul. Um, at the same time, if you're quick, then you're you know you're not in one spot to get caught. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Uh, here we go. This is another one I like. Uh, if my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> So I think the thing you got to take about that the important element to most Bainerisms, right, uh, is that <laughs> most Bainerisms state an obvious truth and an obvious truth that uh, if if the facts presented themselves differently, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Right. And that's and that became uh, as. You know, tongue in cheek as some of those may be, um, it was a. Many of them served as constant reminders to be in the moment, and and whatever your hand, you know, whatever cards you were dealt, you were playing those, not the ones you wanted. You know, that's uh, that's a really good observation. Having read all these, and and I'm and I don't have time to do them all. Um, th- they really do like bring you back to reality. Like all of them are sort of like. Put aside the hypothetical, this, there's a reality to this that needs to be dealt with. And I'll just read this last one. I hope this was never said to you, but it is something that he would clearly say to his staff. Uh, to you, it's just lines on a page, but I have to do this shit. <laughs> right? There again, it's like, you know, the stakes for me are higher. I, I'm dealing with this like, in a reality that perhaps others aren't. No, and that's that was always the one for that was always one reserved for staff, right? That was less. Uh, that was not one sort of reserved for the conference or reserved for the leadership team meetings, um, but reserved for the staff of just okay. You you want me to say what? And bear in mind that 
one, I've got to do it. I've actually got to go there and out there and say whatever it is we've decided I'm going to say. And in the process of doing that, I do not have the ability to levitate or move mountains or uh, perform psychic mind tricks to then all of a sudden tell people, uh, convince people exactly what to do. I think John, John had a, and that was, that phrase is one of part of it. And the other one was uh, not the other phrase, but the other element that he references in the book at one point is as we got into the speaker's office and as he, um, you know, his time, and this is the amazing thing about it, that he has kept a good humor about it, which I think is also just a lesson, just an important lesson in leadership, um, an important lesson in life is, is to embrace whatever the challenges are, embrace them and you figure out your way through them. Um, but he had the, uh, um, a, a sort of uh, monkey with symbols that when you wound it up would just sort of bang its hands together. Right. And it's a, um, you know, they saw references to those, to that same image in, in different movies out there. But, you know, he used to joke that that sort of, you know, was, you wound him up, you just had needed, you wound him up and you put him out there and he goes, it, this is, you would joke that it's not, nothing he did was sort of, you know, organic or creative thought on his own. It was exactly what, what people needed him to do. And that's what our job was to, provide him with what he needed in the moment moving forward. Well, and you know, that's an element of being uh, a staffer that I think is great training for future things. And I, and I want to talk about your current role, but one of them is that all of your work is very public and it gets tested on a daily basis, right? I mean, a staff member's work is never associated with that particular staff member. It's associated with their boss, that boss has to go into the world and deliver the speech or put forward the proposal, et cetera. Um, and once it's out there, like it better be true, you know, it better be mm-hmm. it better be grounded because it is going to be criticized and attacked and and punched around. And if you make a mistake in that staff work, the stakes are high for your principal and whatever idea or you know or principal you were trying to advance. Absolutely, and it's also. I think that's that's it's that coupled with um, coupled with a sense, and this kind of gets back to John's comment about it being lines on a page, is that he needed to be in a place where he could trust us implicitly and often re- almost reflexively without thinking about it uh, or without question to give him, to provide him with what he needed as he moved from a conversation about healthcare to a conversation about infrastructure to a conversation about, um, you know, in a, in a secure room about to get an intelligence briefing. And, you know, when you are third in line of the presidency, like there are, there, every single day is a competing interest. Every minute is a competing interest. And so, um, you need, I need, uh, I need, to have that trust for people that are on my team. I, I need to have that develop that trust for the people that I work for. And, and if you can get to that spot and that's, and that essentially sort of comes back around to what, that's what Bannerland was all about. Bannerland was about uh, doing the right things for the right reasons uh, and, and good things will happen. And that's sort of a core belief that John had that, and if you adopted it and you could be in that moment, You'd be doing the right things for the right reasons, giving him a sense of rationale for trusting you to give him what he needed. And that trust went both ways. 
and the, uh, when you can build that up, it, it is phenomenal. And Bannerland was an exercise in building up that mutual trust across a very large organization. And it's with a recognition that the trust is always fragile, right? And it's the moment that you don't do the homework and you don't do the research and you don't do everything that prepare for sort of all the different questions and the pressure tests that, that come. Um, that's when it feels like that, that's when that trust can get eroded. Well, and so uh, let me take that to your current role. You are head of office uh, and vice president of government affairs at Molson Coors. Um, you know, you've you've had very high stakes jobs and we've talked about some of them, um, you know, briefing the speaker, briefing high, you know, profile elected leaders um, where you do need that homework. How does that, you know, inform and, you know, translate to your work today in the private sector? I think it gives you, I, if you have that experience coming from the Hill in those roles, I think you take it this, you just take everything with that same degree of seriousness, right? I am, uh, to the extent I'm having a conversation with my CEO about a particular topic in advance of him, uh, of my CEO having a conversation with a policymaker of, you know, for, uh, at a state level, at a federal level, at a global level, um, I need him. It, like the relationship needs to be one of where he trusts me, and and uh, and of course I'm I'm trusting him by you know putting him out there, and he trusts me that I'm going to put him out there with the right questions and the right information to make the right decision for the company. And the the stakes, um, you know, the stakes shift in a sense, but they they still are just as high because we're you know I think what I love about being in a highly regulated industry like Molson Coors is that it's, um, you know, we're not talking about sort of one person an elected official's job or the politics around that, but we are talking about that there's a whole lot of people who work for the company that, um, that rely on getting the government affairs and the government engagement right. Um, and if you get it wrong and it's, um, and things aren't managed, things don't go the right way. Uh, you know, a one cent tax increase on a on a can of beer may not sound like much in some circles, but it's um, but the ripple effects when you actually look at sort of for a full company what that means that's a big deal. So it is um, it, it's it's great to be around. If you can find, I think for me the advice I got coming off the hill was if you can find something that's regulated and something that has a brand and put yourself in the middle of that mix, it, it's a fun fun place to do to be, and it's. Um, I think the person that gave me that advice is a guy named Brett Loper, who is our policy director um, and is now runs the office. He's a senior vice president over at uh, uh, American Express. And he mentioned that. He told me that on the way out the door, and I've looked for that ever since. And I uh, tested that out in the airline business for five years before coming over to Molson Coors. And, uh, and certainly when you talk about the world of alcohol and the world for beer and, and trying to figure out how the produce products in a modern setting while adhering to laws and regulations that have been around for the better part of a century. It's a, uh, we're, we're, it's constantly tested. Um, you know, you mentioned advice and that's a, that's a really good piece of advice that I hadn't heard um, as people think about, you know, careers um, and sectors to be in after uh, their public service career. Um, but what, you know, you have the arc of your career, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, went private sector to politics to government and back out. 
there are people who would look at that and say, that's exactly what I want, you know, to, I'd like to have that arc. I'd like to have those experiences. Um, you know, and all the places you've worked, when we think about our very name brand organizations in their fields. Um, so what advice do you give, uh, to folks when they are, you know, thinking about their career and how they should conduct themselves, you know, to perhaps have some of the same experiences you've had? Generally, Jim, I I tell people, try not to think about it too hard, Um, you know, because it's and it's a bit of a bannerism in that sense of, you know, doing the right things for the right reasons and and the right things will happen. Um, I when I was at the RNC, um, there have been I think there have been a series of things in my career that sort of come along and it's and I've made changes and the changes were either forced on me or they were changes that people looked at and scratched their heads a little bit and ended up, but things ended up working out. And it's, so part of it is not thinking about it too hard. And part of it's trusting your gut. Um, because in the moment that'll, that'll kind of tell you exactly what you need to do. But if you're, if you get into public service, you know, working for an administration, working for the Hill, um, I, I implore people to get into it because that's what they want to do. The, most bizarre conversation I have with people um, are I've had this conversation with, with college students who say, I really want to be a lobbyist. And, and I sort of scratch my, and I'll, and I'll stop and then I'll say, why? And I'll say, well, it seems really interesting. It seems really, things like you do a lot of fun things. Um, and there is this great role, I think for, uh, for government affairs professionals to play, to provide expertise and, a voice and um, and really help, really assist and help the entire operation of government run, and that's what lobbyists should do, and and that's what lobbyists um, at, at their best do do. But it's but it is also the lobbying community is also an offshoot for all of us that have no marketable skills anyplace else, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a um, getting into coming to Capitol Hill. I think there's nothing better than someone who comes to Capitol Hill and wants to be a staff assistant and, you know, jumps into politics as a staff assistant and then just finds their path from there. And, and I think the pathways present themselves at the right moments. I wanted to get into that world. Um, and law school gave me a way to do it. Um, or post law school, my lottery gave me a way to do it in terms of jumping into the RNC. I really wanted and I took a leave of absence from the RNC to try and help Mike Duncan run his reelection, help Mike Duncan with his reelection campaign as chairman after um, after Obama came into office. Um, he was not; we were not successful, um, and you know Mike lost that election, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do for a while. But I had built up some relationships with uh, with folks over in um, in Boehner's operation. And his chief of staff at the time, Paula Nowakowski, called me and said, I think I think we might have something that makes sense because we just can't fake. There's a couple things we can't fit. And you might have just the right portfolio. And between Paula and Mike Summers, um, they gave me a chance to, to jump in there. And so and that was an amazing five years. And then I had a friend, uh, another friend call and say, listen, I think there's, I want to try and rebuild um, sort of what the team looked like at Delta Airlines. And I, the, even my wife looked at me and said, why on earth would you leave John Boehner? Like, that is the greatest place ever. Why on earth would you think about doing that? 
And it was about a year later that John sort of had his moment that he describes in the book when he hosted after hosting the Pope that, and he decided to leave. Um, I was with the airlines for five years and had a chance, um, really wanted to kind of grow, um, and was looking for a place wanted, would have loved to stay and grow. And that opportunity wasn't there, but it's, um, wanted to try and grow in a place where I could really manage a team, uh, of government and, and manage the strategy side of, of a government affairs entity. And, and Miller Coors came calling, um, and everyone looked at me and said, why on earth would you leave an airline? Um, <laughs> You know, two years later, they looked at me and I got the same people would send me notes and say, OK, that maybe wasn't a bad decision to get uh, <laughs> yeah, to leave an airline right. and go for and, and be in beer. Yeah. Uh, and, right. and even like a year into this, it's sort of I thought I was I was joining Molson Coors to, to really manage federal and state government affairs for them. And uh, the CEO of, of the U.S. business became the CEO of the, the global business and, and reorganized. And um, he was someone I had interviewed with and and value develop some trust with and I value his opinion a ton. And he said, look, listen, I'd like you to try and take what you've done in the U S and replicate that up in Canada and rebuild a team in Canada and then rebuild sort of our capabilities from a global standpoint. And so it's been like this, this ride has been a lot of fun for the last two and a half years. Incredible. Um, well, I know how busy you are, Will. Um, so I'm, I'm only going to ask you one last question. Um, <laughs> I have this idea that if if I could raise the money for it, I would love to build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall. If I were able to do that and you could nominate someone to be in the Staffer Hall of Fame, who would you nominate and why? It's a really, really good question. Um, because I think that I would be desperately trying to get as many nomination forms for from you as possible <laughs> um, for a whole lot of folks that I just had uh, the incredible good fortune to work with. Um, and it's, um, you know, Joe Marie St. Martin would certainly be one of them. Um, I think again, as in sort of the, the role that she played both at a committee leadership level um, and as an institutionalist and a defender of the, um, both the house and the office of the speaker, um, She's remarkable. Uh, I think Paula Nowakowski would certainly make that list, right? Paula was John's um, John's longtime uh, chief of staff. Who, in when we were in the minority, um, and was the reason that I went over there in the first place, um, but passed away tragically, and uh, in I believe in the beginning of 2010, and it was. I still remember sort of going to the service um, at St. Peter's on the Hill and Barry Jackson, who was also one of John's longtime chiefs of staff and, and succeeded Paula and then Mike Summers succeeded him. Um, just reflecting on how, if you wanted to get anything to done, anything done, you, you asked Paula. Um, you want to know how to roll the white, roll the white house that's in your own party. You ask Paula, you want to know how to maneuver around somebody. You ask Paula. And she was, um, Someone who was a true believer in, I think, the power of, of her convictions. And then those convictions were, um, were driven off of kind of her upbringing and, and her belief in what, um, you know, the, the force that democracy and, and, and Ronald Reagan had for, for Eastern Europe. Um, and it was a, she was a 
she was a, a force to be reckoned with that you never ever wanted to cross, but could be at the same time uh, simply the best best boss in the world. So there's, but there's a lot of them, Jim. And, and I mean, again, I'd be I'd be uh, knocking at your door uh, late, early in the morning or late in the evening for uh, <laughs> trying to replicate. I, I would I'd give be you trying a, to replicate the nomination form to submit uh, a whole lot of folks in. I'd let you vote a few times. It's okay. Um, well, look, I, I really can't thank you enough for making time. Uh, the, the sincerity um, and meaning that you bring to talking about your public service and to the people that you work with uh, and have worked with is just really um, touching and, and genuine. And um, uh, it's no surprise to me that when you and I first met and started working together um, that I found it easy. And, and there was always a welcome uh, open door, even if we didn't disagree, or rather, even if we didn't agree, which we often didn't, right? We, you know, that's where we sat uh, in, our, in our positions re- representing, you know, uh, different people. But um, I think sort of like President Obama and John Boehner came to like one another and find ways, you know, to, to cooperate. Um, that's the type of uh, relationship I, I, I saw in you and I'm, I'm appreciative to have. Um, so thank you, truly. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And likewise, I, you know, that was, I was, you know, you walked in with a smile on your face and that was sort of the most important thing, I think, to any, to start any conversation is, uh, when you're in those, when you're in those circumstances is to walk, walk in and smile and know that it's not, no matter what the conversation is, it should never, ever be personal. And we've sort of gotten, you know, a lot of the politics gets uh, too far into that field these days, but it's, if you could not, if you could make it not personal, then it was, you know, we could always agree to disagree or we could find ways to land on the same place. Um, But I think that the neat, the amazing thing about the role that you were in, um, the role that I was in and the role that I think I've seen for other, I mean, Jeremy was one for that you asked me about, but I I really think I was fortunate to kind of just cross paths or sit across the table from people. And this is the advantage of being in in these roles in DCs. You, you get to sit across the, uh, the table from people who are, just have incredible passion for what they do and and for who they work for. Right. It's, um, I, there were staffers on the Senate side, uh, on the opposite side of the aisle that I can just recall, like trying and being in a tough negotiation. And they are absolutely passionate about that, that their boss could never, ever, ever, ever do that. And it's a, um, again, you, you people brought that passion every single day and that's, that's what makes the place fun. Yeah. Right on. Will, thank you. We, we got to end it there, but it was so well put. Uh, and again, thank you. You got it, Jim. Thank you. All right. Take care now. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.